The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I interviewed Laurie Hamlet, one of the original ground crew members of Number 15 Squadron, Royal New Zealand Air Force, with the P-40 Kitty Hawks. Here's the interview. Can you start off by telling me your full name, your rank and your service number? Uh, my full name is John Lawrence Ernest Hamlet. My rank was Corporal, and my service number is 416754. Okay. That's 1941, uh, sixth month, 
41 is 416. Yep. 754 is the number of bods registered in that year. Yep. For yep. this, for the Air Force. Uh, so, uh, where were you born? I was born in Epsom, Auckland, in 1923. Okay. Right. Um, and you grew up there? Um, yes and no. Uh, okay, I can't remember being born, of course. Yeah. But um, you've got to take into uh, contention the uh, Depression years, and around that time, mm -hmm. where my parents actually lost their house okay. through the Depression. And from there on, it was a, a life of shifting from A to B to C. Yeah where the accommodation was um, part and parcel of wage earning on those days too. My dad was uh, an ex-army uh, member. Uh, he didn't have a trade. Uh, he wasn't university uh, educated, uh, although it would be hard to tell that he wasn't, because he was, he was an Englishman, and very well spoken, and it was rather difficult to think that uh, he couldn't get himself employed uh, permanently, uh, where my mum's brothers were all in the government, uh -huh. either in the railway or the post office. Yep. And uh, sort of being New Zealanders too, that's probably how they were able to uh, obtain their tenure in the, the government employee. Right. But Dad, uh, being an immigrant, uh, he came out here um, at 14. He was born in 96. Uh, he was here 14, so uh, he didn't have very long here before he was in the Army and then went overseas. Okay, with the New Zealand Army? Mm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And uh, not so... He was in the motor trade. I think um, probably a salesman. Yep. He wasn't a mechanic. He was no good with tools. Or <laughs> <laughs> up with a shovel and spades in the garden. Yeah. But uh, no, he wasn't a mechanic. But uh, we shifted around uh, the inner sanctums of the Auckland city, Parnell mostly, uh, Mount Eden, and then finally um, got sort of semi permanency over the shore in like Devonport. Mm -hmm. Stanley Bay yep. and in 39 uh, we were able to uh, get a state house in Oraki okay. yep. and uh, <coughs> that's where life continued and finished okay. for them. It, it's interesting when you think about being a poor family like that and you're living in Devonport and uh, you know they're all the, the posh places now that you mentioned they're Parnell. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's right too, but you've got to take into account too that um, the, the city was more or less governed by how far the trams went. Right. Where the trams finished, that was country. Yep. So all activity took place within the city. All your jobs, uh, all your motor franchises and so forth were either uh, Queen Street or up Albert Street. A uh, little bit over in Newmarket, mm -hmm. over the shore, no, nothing. Um, 
over the shore and also to uh, uh, being over the shore not that that had any influence on the work at the time uh, work was grabbed if you could get it yeah. so dad not being a, uh, a a tradesman or a labourer of, of any sort uh, he worked uh, laying concrete at the Pai Airport for a start, right, okay. uh, scraping the bottom of ships in the Calliope Dock, yeah. just to earn a few bob. Yeah. And uh, so in that sense, and then uh, he finally got a job in the government, <laughs> a bit late in life. Well, see, he, he might have worked with my grandfather, because my grandfather laid concrete at Pai as well. Is that right? Mm, yeah. You know, I'm not quite sure the number of... Uh, Bods, it would have been. I think there was quite a few hundred. It, 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 it yeah. would have been because it would have been a work uh, interest, mm. no matter what. Yeah. Um, this uh, was. Uh, <coughs> how did it come about? He he started work in the the government in the what was called the New Zealand Placement Service. Okay. And it was a an office formed by men operating, interviewing uh, immigrants or uh, getting work for other people. And it was run by a chap by the name of Jack Butland. Okay. Now Jack Butland finished up Sir Jack Butland Cheese Company. Okay. Yeah. Now uh, when Jack Butland. Um, decided that he was going to lead the government, he offered my father a job with what he was proposing to do and Dad turned it down right. and that was the biggest mistake he made in his life. <laughs> Jack Button made a fortune oh, right. <laughs> out of Chesdale cheese. <laughs> oh right, of course. <laughs> yes. wow. But he did well for himself within the, uh, the confines of that uh, position in that he was, he finished up the head shoring okay. of doing a, trips to uh, Indonesia, trips to Europe, uh, immig um, interviewing immigrants from Holland mostly, okay. Dutch immigrants. Yeah. And uh, yes, he, he only lasted to 73. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So I guess with all that moving around, around you were also moving from school to school? Oh yes. Yes. So where did you go to school? Uh, which um, yeah, well, Parnell mostly I can remember. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, and my brothers and sisters uh, were nearly all born in that area, I think. Without actually uh, asking them. Uh, yeah. Uh, over the shore, my youngest. My youngest sister must have been born over the shore. Okay. Hmm, I don't know. I can't I, I, recall. I guess um, Devonport must have been quite a good place to grow up. Well, it was a good place to grow up. Uh, I went through primary school up to standard six in those days. Um, uh, I think was... I think I attended uh, to standard six, which was now form two. Uh, would have been the last year boys because this was the Catholic school system, yeah. uh, where boys, by the time they got to standard six, were starting to get a bit big, and they might have been a little bit uh, 
uh, <laughs> sort of uh, hard work with the nuns. Okay. Yep. The, uh, the likes of two blokes that I can recall of were uh, being a, a nun and to be handling these blokes with, they could have played sort of first class football, they were that big. <laughs> so any sort of comeback uh, through uh, not uh, towing the line, uh, a girl, uh, being nuns of course, girls uh, wouldn't have had the strength to handle them. So uh, this is where St Peter's over the shore, over um, uh, in the city was uh, set up and of course Sacred Heart College was in Bottomby and uh, I finished up schooling at Sacred Heart College. Okay. Mm. And um, do you remember your sort of earliest um, memories of uh, aviation, aircraft around? Did you? <coughs> well, being a boy and uh, that sort of uh, technology um, being reasonably new and interesting, uh, my dad's interested in cars, of course. Mm -hmm. um, there was a little bit of uh, mechanics sort of offloaded, possibly. Um, and uh, where the occasion arose, we might have uh, gone, say, to Mangry Airfield in those days, which was just a, a grass paddock, mm -hmm. and uh, be sort of awed by the tiger moths. Well, they weren't tigers, then they were gypsies. Yes, yep. Um, that, that could have fosters a bit of uh, interest and of course when the time came to uh, uh, be military or <laughs> join the military yeah. um, it wasn't a case of going into the army although I was interviewed I, I was serving an apprentice as an auto electrician at the time uh, I was interviewed uh, by the army to uh, to go into the LRDG but uh, oh, wow. I didn't uh, it didn't ever really have the, the wherewithal that they wanted at the time, so <coughs> my dad said, volunteer for the Air Force. And of course, uh, in doing that, I uh, put the brakes on being put into uniform. When I turned 18, uh, I didn't get called up until the December, and I turned 18 in June, okay. and I got called up in the December. Okay. Of 19, December the 7th, 1941. So that rings a bell, doesn't yeah, very it? Very famous day, isn't it? Mm. Wow. And that stopped me from going to England. Okay, yep. Mm. Yep. Of course. Well, from that day on, all the courses going through the, the establishment at the time were clamped down and stopped from going to England because the interest was then in the Pacific. Now, did you have the choice of wanting to be in... Um, in the electrical side of things? Or? Yes, I wanted to be a flight mechanic. Okay. Mm. So, typical being Air Force, they give you the wrong choice. Yeah, well, being an uh, auto electrician and so forth, um, they didn't want me as an electrician, but I went into the instrument side of it. Okay. And, uh, and that's where I've been ever since, as okay. far as the trade's concerned. Yep. Yeah. Right. So, w when you first joined, where did you go? F what was your first posting? Uh, I had to report to Hayward and Christchurch from Auckland. Yep. I went down my train across the, uh, no, it wasn't across the Straits Centre, it was from uh, Wellington and Christchurch in the boat right. then. And uh, duly arrived at Hayward, early hours of the morning, uh, put through all the inspections, yes sir, no sir, and 
teeth and physical looks and the likes. Yeah. Um, had lunch, went back to the barracks after lunch, wasn't feeling too rosy, wasn't feeling too rosy at all. And in fact, I was caught sitting down on the toilet floor with my head in the bloody toilet bowl, heaving my lunch out. And at five o'clock I had my appendix out. Oh, wow. I'm not, that's my first day in the Air Force. <laughs> so I started my Air Force career with 10 days in hospital and six weeks leave. <laughs> <laughs> Paid leave as well, I guess. Paid leave, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. And I also got out of doing all the uh, square bashing and so forth that all the other boys were <laughs> experiencing at that time. So it was a little bit detrimental but because when I, uh, after the course had finished, uh, they were all banded together and shot back to Auckland because I was green as grass as those parades and so forth. I didn't know what the hell to do. And then uh, the station warrant officer called me one day and I went through a personal course of marching and all that. <laughs> Uh, was a big laugh actually. <laughs> <laughs> to think that I got cream treatment from the SWO. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, you say Auckland, was that for or Hobson? No, it was Hobsonville. Oh, yeah, okay. Mm, that was, Hobsonville was a trade training oh, of course, yeah. establishment. But uh, it's uh, armourers, electricians, uh, not so much engines. Most engines were done in uh, Rogatai in Wellington. Uh, but the uh, <coughs> queer trades yeah. <laughs> uh, carried out a hobby. Um, and they were also, at the time, assembling aircraft. Uh, Lockheed Hudson's. Uh, actually, I worked on the last of the uh, Hawker Hines. Oh, okay. it, that was the first aircraft I ever put hands on. Uh, but I think it was the only the one aircraft, must have been the last one. Well, assembling it, or was that yes, the yes, yes, finished assembly, yeah. Okay. Mm. yeah. Right. And uh, then the, the Hudsons came in, because we were doing courses then, uh, coming off the course, we worked on that uh, that type of interest. Most of us were, well, most of the boys on the course were posted, hither, thither, and yon. But I, for some reason, stayed in around Auckland. And uh, with a little bit of uh, the assembly expertise uh, attained, I was then posted to Christchurch to uh, help assemble the P-40s. All right. They were, uh, although we did actually start the P-40s at Hobsonville, but um, the space wasn't big enough for the aircraft, really. Could, <laughs> the first one uh, flown from there was flown successfully, but um, pilot more for uh, engineering castigated for flying the aircraft without guns in it. Okay. Because that upset the balance of the aircraft, but it didn't upset the pilot flying it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm not quite sure what time was spent uh, between serving the time in Hobsonville and then going down to Christchurch. But uh, I was down there for nearly 12 months. Okay, so and what was actually involved in uh, 
assembly in a kitty hawk? How did they come um, off the ship? Uh, that's a good question. That's a good question because mostly day-to-day uh, -day work we're working on more semi-assembled aircraft. Um, and here again I couldn't tell you how they arrived in the country. Because uh, the Skyhawks coming in were sort of assembled and were lifted off the ship. Um, the Warfish wouldn't touch them and the Air Force had to uh, take them back out to Whanuapai. Uh, but Kitty Hawks, I, I can't recall. It's Nor the Hudsons. It, it's a big job to um, put the wing, take the wings off and put the wings on, isn't it? So yeah, especially on a uh, smaller aircraft. Um, the P-40's wings all in one piece. Yeah. Uh, the Hudson is not. It's uh, fuselage in two pieces. Um, Probably didn't take in interest into seeing what was going on, rather than working on the areas that you were interested in. Really, I suppose they, they weren't covered with any sort of covering to keep the. Mm, yes, they were. Uh, they. Uh, that's a good point too, because they must have come in uh, uh, fully assembled, because if they were covered in the anti-corrosion. Goo that came in uh, had, had to be cleaned off. Yeah. Although, here again, I can't recall having seen any aircraft being washed down that have actually f felt the presence of that protection on on working on some of the aircraft. Yep. And here again, in crisis, I don't know. Uh, just working on the virtually uh, completely. Well, not completely assembled aircraft, as all controls and so forth were being fitted on. No, I just can't, can't recall. So, from Christchurch, the Christchurch ones must have come into Littleton. Oh, yes. And so yeah. they would have been towed over the hill, were they? Well, they could have been if they were. Uh, it wouldn't have been a an easy job towing a, a plane through, the, uh, say, around the. Port Hills yeah, in no, those days. I've actually seen a photo of a Hudson being towed over there with its wings off. With its wings off, yeah, yeah. just a fuselage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And thinking about it, it didn't have any protection on it. So whether they took that off at the war first, I don't know. Right, yeah. Hmm. Interesting, but uh, I mean, it's little things like this that get forgotten, and that's why that, I thought that's I'd right. Yes, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a damn good question, really, because uh, and I haven't any compatriots really that I could ask. No. Uh, here again all my, all, all the bods were, uh, on my first course they've all gone. Right. Um, and, and also uh, later connections with all the different blokes they've all gone. Except for one that's out uh, of and he's about a year older than me. But he finished up as a squadron leader engineering officer. Oh, really? <laughs> he stayed in, yes. Okay. We were both corporals at the time. Okay, what's his name? Uh, George Hall. George Hall. Mm. Might have to go and visit him as well. Ah, <laughs> uh, he's ailing. Is he? Okay. He's ailing, yes. Yes, he, uh, he finished up by, go <coughs> by going to uh, Japan oh, yeah. with the uh, occupational force. Yep. He, was, he was an NCO then. Okay. And, uh, Yes, he stayed in. But, uh, 
So, um, sorry. Sorry, just getting back to the assembly side of things, what were you specifically doing? Were you just testing all the systems or were you actually fitting stuff? Uh, yeah, fitting the instruments and oh, the lights yeah. and connecting. Yep, yep. Okay, so they came without the instruments fitted? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, here again, uh, <coughs> some of the instruments might have been in the uh, servicing shop. Right. Uh, right. Probably been checked before operation and things like that. Yeah, I see what you're saying because they would have been test flying in the States, so they would have been doing I would think so, yeah. 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 So once, that. They, once they've had that trip over, they need to get serviced again so yeah. they're ready yeah. to go. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So um, you said you were in Christchurch doing that for about a year. Is that at Hayward? Yeah, that was in 42. Yeah. Um, it, it wouldn't have it would have been the best part of the year. Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, at the tail end of 42, um, I was then posted from assembly up to Funuapai to join number 15 squadron okay. to go overseas. So that was in, <coughs> that would have been, yeah, when would that have been, <coughs> I've got to look at Going in December 41, the course so it would have been probably March, probably six or seven months probably would have been okay. in and around uh, Auckland and Christchurch. Uh, because we went overseas, I think it was uh, October, November of 42 to Tonga. To Tonga, okay, so you were at Tonga. Mm. Oh, wow. I've never met anyone who went there, so that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, uh, we went there by ship uh, from Wellington. Our 15 squadron was formed up by, um, I'm not quite sure, there was a, a whole lot of um, um, talk going on about petrol being siphoned off to put in the cars and things like that. And perpetrators and so forth being uh, up before the beacon and so forth and penalised but also we had quite a few expats from the RAF that were caught in Singapore and that formed a nucleus of the boys that went away to Tonga and uh, <coughs> in arriving in Tonga we took over a squadron of P-40Es that were being flown by the Yanks at the time. <coughs> I've got it in the book here. So my understanding is that these E's you took over were actually in quite bad condition. Big pardon? I, I understand that the E's you took over in Tonga, <laughs> they were in quite bad condition. <laughs> they were flyable. They were flyable. Yeah. But uh, yes, they uh, they weren't maintained very well. Possibly because uh, they they were really out of the sphere of activity. Uh, Tonga being over this side of the Pacific all the action taken over this side of the Pacific. Uh, but it was a more or less a policing position right. uh, in that should they break away from over here and come over there had to be something there to stop them right. possibly. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it was a very sort of lax atmosphere. Okay. So we would, uh, in taking over the aircraft, sort of grounded them all okay. and worked on them to get them to a 
<coughs> satisfactory airworthy condition that we want to fly them around day after day okay. and get used to the aircraft too. So did that involve um, stripping each one down? and, and uh, Not so much as stripping them right down but uh, getting into the the innards of them to make sure that all that was okay. Guns for instance needed a lot more attention, uh, they hadn't actually been serviced very well due to the atmosphere and the likes and the aircraft are out in the open all the time too, there's no no hangers or anything like that, all the work was done outside. It's some of the guns even had wasps down, down the barrel, so that's... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, did you, did you guys, when you arrived there, did you interact with the Americans? Was no. there any period, or were they gone? No, uh, when we took over, they disappeared. Okay. Yeah. Actually, there was an uh, integration at the initial arrival there probably or this is this just to show you, you do this yeah, yeah, that's right and also uh, uh, getting used to their sort of rank system and how they treated rank and the likes but well, I wasn't a corporal then I was at NIC and uh, yes just to have to watch your P's and Q's on yes sir no sir states yeah. <coughs> but uh, yes it was it was interesting because it was all new and being a kid so far it was a like playing with a new toy really and and being away from the country for the first time um, but we we fitted in fairly well um, and training um, that went on for uh, a period of time that was probably considered necessary and then uh, we were called away uh, to to get the aircraft over to uh, the the western side of the Pacific, and had to prepare the aircraft uh, for the journey because they had to be flown mm-hmm. uh, from island to island. And uh, it was really sort of hats off to those bods that uh, sort of prepared the aircraft that they were capable of doing that too because. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure how they yanked up there in the first place, but uh, there was no talk of them flying them from here to there and everywhere. Uh, but uh, we lost two aircraft, three aircraft while we were there. We lost a pilot in doing a shoot up one day. Uh, he didn't keep the nose high enough and he went into the trees. Uh, lost another one through a, a wheels up landing on metal matting. And uh, I lost another one on target practice, uh, taking off with the drogue. The drogue got caught and he put it down between two trees. Oh, he right. walked away from it. Yeah. Wow. The, the, uh, the wheels up landing, he walked away from it. But uh, Don McChrystal was killed. He went in. But uh, apart from that, uh, I think the rest of the aircraft we took with us uh, when we were ferrying them across the Pacific. So before we get to that, um, uh, tell me about the living conditions in Tonga. Were, what were you living in and what were the pilots living in? Was it uh, the pilots, uh, I dare say they would have been living in similar accommodation. We had uh, what were called concert huts okay. in those days. Uh, in that area, uh, it was a well-established uh, uh, field. Uh, just from memory was sort of shaped uh, in between the trees this way and then opened out like a big 
tee where the, the tee on a sort of crook angle yeah. um, with all that metal matting and the grass growing through it. Yeah. Um, <coughs> without that metal matting, the Pacific would have been impossible. impossible. Yeah. Uh, but for all that, it, uh, it served a marvellous purpose. It's probably still there today, if probably the truth is. be known. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, what was the food situation like in Tonga? Uh, pretty good, yeah. pretty good. Had your own uh, cooks or? Being, uh, oh yes, yes, yeah, we had our own, uh, yeah, yes, it was like, um, like camping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like camping. Uh, no place did I serve where I could say that the food was lousy. Okay. Except for spam. Yeah. <laughs> and spam only because it was dished up to you every day under some sort of disguise. <laughs> uh, so don't say, would you like a sausage roll or something like that? No, thank you. <laughs> no, the uh, cooking facilities, um, uh, we're, we're all pretty good, pretty good. The uh, the Yanks supplied us with the food. Um, yes, sort of later on in Fiji, Fiji was supplied from New Zealand from time to time. Um, and also, uh, I served up in the Fati, in the uh, Ellis Islands with the flying boats, uh, and that was serviced from Fiji, and at times uh, fresh food from New Zealand. But in the Western side, it was all American. I'm not quite sure if Australia might have had a bit of an input, although we we weren't connected to Australians uh, military-wise. They, they don't. They, they seem to be operating more over in the New Guinea area than uh, in the uh, the Hebrides and Solomons. In, in Tongo, how about the um, locals? Did you mix with the locals much, or did you have any working with you? Not very much, no. Uh, although when we did have leave and so forth, and uh, walking around the place, we were never uh, told uh, you can't go here, you can't go there, except uh, around royalty. Right. You couldn't get into the the royal enclosures. Mm -hmm. But uh, no, the uh, uh, we more or less accepted, and they accepted us. Uh, a bit like the Maori New Zealand uh, connection yeah. at that time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was also hell and hearty. Okay. Uh, the girls were of interest, of course, to some. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but uh, no, there was uh, the fraternisation was yeah, like brother and sister. Yeah. That was good. And, and so you were talking about moving across to the west and you went via Fiji. Mm -hmm. um, now, the aircraft were flying down to Fiji, was that en masse or did they go in different groups or? No, we flew them all on one day yep. with a mothership. And what was the mothership? Was, was B-17. Oh, right, okay. There's 36 of us. Wow. Mm. Okay. The 36 of us then operated the squadron uh, for nearly three to four months before the rest of the squadron caught us up. Okay, so you went in the B-17? Mm. Wow, that would have been quite an experience. Yeah, I, mean, I was in the nose too. <laughs> mm, in the nose too, yes. It, yes, it was. Yeah, the, the, here again, that wasn't it, because that that was a monstrous aeroplane. Even a DC three was a monstrous aeroplane those days. 
and to see something like that landing in tyre was like trying to put a bumblebee on a sixpence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was when it sort of fly over and you wonder how the dickens they're going to put it on the ground but it happened. Yeah. So, yeah, so sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, now we ferried the aircraft from uh, Tonga through Fiji to the Hebrides. Uh, but in Fiji, uh, where were you based? Where did you...? Fiji was just a stop, they were refuel. Um, we must have overnighted. Um, Didn't you lose your CO there though? Hmm? Didn't you lose your CO in Fiji? No, uh, yes, but that was later on. Oh, was it? We, we went back to Fiji. Oh, I didn't realise that, okay. Hmm. Yeah, now we ferried it through Fiji yep. um, because of the range of the, the Kitty Hawks not being able to get from Tonga over to the uh, Hebrides, yep. and uh, yes, and then we were more or less established in the Hebrides, and then uh, we were called back to Fiji to do exercise with the with the Yanks, and that's where the CO was lost. Right. The uh, he had a mid with a, an SBD, right. and uh, yeah, that was sad that because he uh, he was good. He was good. Yeah, that must have been quite a uh, a, a jolt for the squadron because it wasn't. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. in combat or anything. It was no, no, just that's a right. Silly accident. Yeah, no, it, uh, and at that, <coughs> excuse me, in that time too, I, I was in hospital again because I I knew that they were going to go back to Fiji, and uh, I didn't report that I wasn't feeling too rosy because I, I must have contracted dengue fever oh. in the Hebrides and um, I, I kept it to myself knowing that I was going away and I got into the plane and when I got off the plane I wasn't feeling too good and had to report to uh, sick bay and I spent uh, five or six days in the hospital up at the back of the uh, what is now the uh, uh, Andy airport. Oh, yeah. The hospital was up in the hills. Okay. It was an American hospital. And got coming away from there and then back with the squadron. Um, we then uh, had to reassemble and then get flown uh, from there to the Solomons. Mm. So, um, when you um, when you lost Alan Crichton, who took over as CO then? Mike Herrick. Oh right, and mm. he was the Battle of Britain ace. Yes, yeah. yes, he was a DFC. And uh, mm. was was he a good leader as well? Big pun. Was he a good leader? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Well, he had experience. Um, uh, yes, he. No, he was only a youngster. Well, we're all youngsters. We're all youngsters. Yeah. Um, okay, some of the pilots were older than the others, but uh, it was through his experience that he was given the uh, the leadership. Because uh, uh, another pilot that could have taken over would have been a. Uh, a chap by the name of Duncan. I'm not quite sure what his first name was. Dewillamoff uh, was with us too. Oh yeah, yeah. And Dewillamoff and, um, and um, oh another Dutch, uh, a Dutch uh, name pilot um, Vanderpump. Oh yeah, Mortimer Vanderpump. Because yeah. um, <coughs> Mike Herrick uh, was posted back to England. But that was after we'd done the series in the Solomons and gone back to the Hebrides. Uh, the pilots uh, were dispersed. 
everywhere and uh, we don't know really what happened to them uh, we thought being per well, actually getting back to the Hebrews from the Solomons it was by virtue of the fact of uh, Mike Herrick uh, telling the powers that be that came to join or rejoin the squadron that we'd done our stint up there and we were to be posted home of which that happened and uh, so uh, we were then shipped from the Solomons down to the Hebrides and uh, a group captain or I think it might have, might have been a wing commander Wallingford nice. uh, he was in charge down there then and he stopped us going home for nearly four weeks he might have been by virtue of the fact that probably couldn't have been a ship going back, but that's how we came back home by ship. Okay. So, so. Um, tell me about the spirit of Santo and living there. What was that like? Well, here again, another another camp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were no, we didn't uh, suffer any, well, not suffer, but uh, have to contend with bad conditions or. Um, questionable conditions until we got to the Solomons because yeah. that was where we were living in tents yeah. and uh, it was up on a on a hill um, it was called Strafer's Heights <laughs> I can remember Strafer's Heights because okay. uh, the, the uh, Guadalcanal uh, uh, suffered quite a fair amount of activity in uh, <coughs> being uh, secured over quite a lengthy period of time that it took them a wee while to to really um, say that it's ours and uh, so in consequence that that area must have been where they, they lived uh, where the uh, Americans were living uh, but it was all sort of tent accommodation and, and the aircraft coming over but might have been sort of good target to have a go at yeah. <clears throat> because um, when we get air raid warnings at night time, there was just a scurry of getting out of the tents and into uh, sort of ground protection um, for fear of uh, what had been uh, experienced in the past. Although we didn't uh, have to come in contact with anything like that at all. We did get bombed a couple of couple of nights, but uh, nothing of any consequence. We had a lot of Lockheed Lightning on standby down there for that purpose. He was very successful. <laughs> Those that came down never got back. Right, right. <laughs> I've heard about that lightning. Yes. People stand out watching it shoot things down. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, and um, in terms of the squadron there, um, you guys were the first squadron to actually go into action Yes. At the Solomons. Yes, apart from number three squadron, which of was course. operating from uh, Henderson. Yep. Uh, we were on Cookham Field, um, uh, which was adjacent to, but uh, uh, operating differently from. Uh, we were in company with uh, uh, American Wildcats, and there was a squadron of uh, P-39s there as well. But uh, being only interested in our own aircraft, didn't really have much to do with the activity of the of the other aircraft around because we were parked in different areas as well. Yeah. So uh, 
but uh, when it was busy, it was busy. You didn't really uh, sort of stand around garping. <laughs> yeah. And working on the aircraft, particularly with your instruments um, in that heat, that must have been it's bloody hot. Bloody hot. It's <coughs> it, uh, and also too uh, with the um, uh, the field servicing units too, which were nearly all mobile. Um, you had to make sure that uh, should you have any anomalies there could be replacements because there's no actual repairing as such okay. done it was uh, if a, say an altimeter or something like that went fut, you take it out and you go to the uh, field service and get another one okay. and put it in so it was a, just a game of uh, replacement um, armourers would have whereas if you were in New Zealand they would have tried to repair that wouldn't they yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Although here again, it would have gone into the shop to be repaired. You probably come back up with a, a replacement unit, but uh, no plane was kept on the ground because of uh, something not being available. Okay. We'll put it that way. But you were going to say something about the armourers. Oh, the armourers would have been the uh, the harder set because um, it's sort of jams or anything like that. You'd have to work on the on the wing of the aircraft and the heat, it'd be just like working on a frying pan. Jeez, oh, <laughs> doesn't be a thing of it. <laughs> no, it's, well here again we're working on the Catalinas, we we didn't do that at all. Uh, we, okay, they, they'd go out in the morning, come back at night, but those that weren't for servicing, uh, weren't serviced during the day because they were like working in ovens. At, uh, <coughs> and they're the small aircraft. S same here too. Is that uh, uh, you didn't have a full suit on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think if you get a work uh, working on them naked, you could have got away with it. <laughs> I, I've been inside uh, over at Tamora in Australia. They've got a Hudson, and oh, I climbed right. into that one day um, when it was forty-three degrees. Oh, and oh my God, it was literally like an oven. Oh yes, yes. And, yeah, and I climbed. It'd be up hard to breathe. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah it'd be hard yeah. to breathe. And, oh, I, and right. I climbed up into the turret, and of course the turret's all painted black on the middle part. So yes, it yes. was literally. Oh. <laughs> You'd burn yourself touching yeah. anything. Yeah, and I, the sweat was pouring oh, off me. Oh God, yes. And it, yes. But I, but I wasn't going to give up the opportunity to get inside <laughs> it when I was invited by the pilot. So. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> But so I got a, I got a little bit of an inkling of what it must have been like, and I was only in there for five minutes, and yes. the whole day of that, no thanks. Oh, yeah. No wonder these guys are all skinny. <laughs> well, that's another thing too. Good, you, um, you you suck salt tablets like peppermints to uh, replace your sort of fluid loss. Yeah. I don't know how long it took me to get into the cockpit there. Yes. It, it, the aircraft must have been cool enough to do that. So. <laughs> so, was there any um, trouble spots with the P forty that was a common occurrence that always sort of, you know, was an an annoying thing that would keep going wrong, or were they pretty reliable? Very, yeah. very. Yes, no, there was no. I can't think of anything that. Or even uh, on one one aircraft came in one day and the seal had uh, failed in the uh, the back of the engine where the flexible cable for the tachometer was attached to. And it's only a short length of uh, flex, 
Mm -hmm. that and the uh, oil had come out of the engine and through the the, the, the housing of the uh, the cable because the cable would be like a spiral pump because it was just, just like wound it and the tachometer was half full of oil. Okay. Uh, but uh, <coughs> being the type of instrument they were, it really didn't uh, deter them from operating because the pointer would disappear in there and then it'd come up. <laughs> But it had to be taken out in yeah. time, which is yeah. fixed up. But uh, no, there's no uh, no no. They, they were very reliable. Okay. Now, did you, as an instrument repairer, did you get assigned to a specific aircraft, or did you have? A group yes, of being only thirty-six of us operating uh, the squadron at that time, the whole thirty-six of us wouldn't have been every day. So it'd be uh, there'd be crews split up, yep. and uh, being uh, a non-airframe engine, uh, I was assigned an aircraft to look after, and keep warm. Yep. I was the only instrument basher in the air force that could start an Allison engine, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it was through that experience too that uh, when I got back from the first trip overseas and posted down to um, Woodburn. I uh, got permission to be able to start at Harvard. Oh, right. Yes, okay. it, was, it saved time. Then yeah. with uh, Woodburn being uh, two uh, EFTS uh, trainee pilots coming in reporting this and that, so you didn't know whether it was true or not or whether they were trying to get away with not doing something right. Yep. Yep. And so in, if it had to have an engine run, uh, rather go to the engineering officer and Finding out if I get a mechanic to come up and start it, I, I let him know that I was had the opportunity of doing the Allison. Could I start the, the Harvard? And then I got the permission to do that too. So, right. mm. so do you remember which uh, P40 you were specifically? No, no, no. Um, you just had to uh, be assigned to they be with the aircraft uh, uh, for the time. Um, <coughs> And after each run, uh, it had to be refuelled. Uh, of course, you'd check the aircraft first thing in the morning uh, to make sure that everything right, the oxygen and the likes, everything was was right. Uh, okay, you're not going to use oxygen just running an engine, uh, but just to keep an eye on uh, engine temperature. So if they did a call out, there's no time spent on the ground warming the engine up. Um, <coughs> and that was more or less done by all the aircraft that were on the field at the time, they were kept in the ready. So, hmm. But the aircraft we were using at the time too were P-40Es. That's what I was going to ask. Because ah. when you got to the Solomons, you went to the Ks and Ms, didn't you? The Ks and Ms came in after the Es. Mm. Uh, and they would have been uh, aircraft flown up from New Zealand yep. at that time. Yep, 14. Now we didn't enjoy up. them because we weren't there. Oh, they okay. came because we gone. We were posted back home. You see, thirty six of us. The rest thought, of us got I thought it. your squadron picked up the the K's and M's that uh, fourteen squadron brought up to Santo, and you fourteen you squadron hadn't come up to Santo at that time. Oh, okay. Fifteen squadron were the only squadron operating in that area while we were there. Yeah, I thought you guys moved on with their aircraft and they stayed with your old aircraft. I no. No, okay. not that I know of. Okay. No, not that I know of. And so you didn't like the, the 
Oh, you said you didn't enjoy the K's and M's. You mean you didn't get a chance to? Yeah, we did have one, uh, was an N in, in Tonga, but the rest of them were E's. Yeah. I think it was uh, a K in Tonga. You had a K. Hmm? You had a K in Tonga, I think. K, I think, yeah, well, yes. K or an N, yeah. yeah. It's very hard to tell the difference, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Um, and no, we... Uh, If we had to, uh, yes, they were still the old colour when we got them to uh, the Solomons and uh, it was due to a, um, a melee that they, the boys got themselves into where the Yanks uh, were more or less assigned to shoot at anything that had a red, a red randle on it. <laughs> so we had to then paint the round red roundels out and just as just a tiny little red dot yep. and then also put the white stripe around and over the wings. Yep. So uh, yes. So all the aircraft then coming up to replace them would have been modified to that right. Right. appearance. Yep. But uh, no we didn't enjoy more modern aircraft while we were there. Okay. Yep. Uh, the rest of the squadron could have because um, 15 uh, being, uh, uh, our bit of 15 being shot back home and the pilots coming down probably being dispersed, then 14 squadron would have taken over mm-hmm. and continued on. And I'm not quite sure the numbers of squadrons that uh, actually went up uh, in that area over time before they changed over to the OTUs, um, where the pilots might have been uh, squadronised but the ground service units were not attached to a squadron yeah, um, what, number. What you mean is the servicing units? Isn't yeah, it? operational yeah. training, uh, opera- the ser- SU, yeah, operational yeah. servicing units. Yeah, yes. that, that came, yeah, that came in after you guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, which you were quite lucky getting home when you did after that, that time because that, some of those guys had to stay there for a year, and then some of the a few of those were meant to stay on for another half half that, a year. That's so. right. That's right. Imagine that. And of course, and you've got to think too. Then in, in uh, setting up a service unit, it didn't have to go or, or be um, uh, personalised with a squadron unit. Uh, single persons could just keep coming up and filling in replacements, yeah. rather than a whole band of uh, bodies being moved. Exactly. I think that was the idea of. Uh, introducing that type of activity. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there would have been that many who would have lasted the full year because there was so much disease and mm. other problems, wasn't there? Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, I, ha- I have come across one guy in the past I've talked to was up there for 15 months. Is that right? Yeah. Um, mm. He was obviously, had the stamina. Yes, um, yes. Or bad luck. <laughs> yes, that's right. So when you, when you came back home from there, when you... Um, were sent back to New Zealand, were you no longer with the squadron? You were then posted elsewhere? Yeah, yep, yep. yep. Yeah, I was posted to uh, uh, Woodburn. Okay. And I spent, uh, oh, 13 months down there. Okay. On, on Harvard's. Now, what was the unit there? Were you with the service flying trains? That was uh, overhauling, yeah, in the uh, workshop. They had quite an extensive uh, workshop system there uh, in doing majors. Um, being an NCO uh, at the time, uh, I was more uh, 
uh, allocated to uh, daily aircraft operation and making sure that the Form 700s were uh, all duly f filled in as far as my part of the interest was concerned yeah. to, um, and also make sure that the, uh, the aircraft were uh, registered for the day's flying. So you're uh, like in a flight line office type thing? And uh, yeah, yes, from the, from the instrument shop yeah. and uh, after the morning inspection carried out went back to the shop and I might have been called into the, uh, the overhaul hangar where you, they were more or less serviced on, serviced on the Ford T principle, sort of going in one door, being stripped right down, worked on and then coming out the other door fully assembled and repaired. Right. It was a, a, a quite a clever operation. Yeah. It was the only time I'd seen that uh, operating in New Zealand, okay. or anywhere really, that yeah. uh, it was good. Because they had a lot of aeroplanes down there at the time. It was, I think it was over a hundred odd aircraft. Uh, the Harvards and uh, Oxfords. Yep. Not that many Oxfords, but uh, mainly Harvards. That, uh, yeah, that's where the pilots uh, were uh, graduated with their wings from there. Yeah. Mm. And they were the it's ones that would go on to single wing and. Well, they, you, whichever way they, they, they finish their training whether it be single engine or multi. Okay. Mm. Yep. So, I mean, it's actually really interesting for me because, you know, I know quite a bit about the flying training school there because I've talked to a lot of pilots who've gone through there and I've looked at a lot of logbooks, but actual ground crew working on those aeroplanes, I think you're the first I've ever come across. So is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. that's, that's strange. Yeah. yeah. It is. Um, mm. So, uh, it must have been a... Were you in barracks there, or how did... Oh, yes. Yep. yep, yep so it must have been a fairly good... Uh, oh, yeah, it was like a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite, but... Uh, no, very comfy. There's, there was, no, <laughs> you weren't struggling. It was, it was... Woodburn was well set out, really well set out. At the uh, <coughs> airfield operation and so forth on one side of the road, the accommodations on the other side of the road. Yeah. It, uh, and this part where you could get yourself killed is if you walk out on the road and there's cars coming up. <laughs> right. Yeah, because now they've got the tunnel under it. But yeah, when, yeah. Uh, uh, when I, w I was in the Air Force as well, and when mm. I did my training, um, the tunnel was new, and apparently only a couple of years before, oh, is that it right? used to be bloody dangerous going Oh, yeah, we, we had to walk across the road. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. No, the woodburn was well set out. Mm. And while I was there, I never got the opportunity to go to a marker. Okay. I've never been to a marker. Right. I always, the next time, well, chance to go down, I'm going to go down to a market because it's a lot more interesting. Because that, that was a um, sort of a semi commercial field. Mm. Yeah, it was the Aero Club. The Aero, you still yeah. own it too. Yeah. Um, mm. But that's a great place. You need to get down there and see it. Yes, yes. So yes. much going on there. Oh yes, yes, including there's a couple of P40s there as well. So. Is that right? Yeah, being yeah. rebuilt. Yeah. Oh, good. Yes, I've also got an interest um, at Ardmore at the moment at uh, uh, at uh, Pioneer Aero. Yep. Uh, they're putting four of them together. There's three three E's and a a K, I guess. Yeah, well, one of yeah. one of those E's is now at a marker. It's just moved down. Oh, has it? Yeah. Ah, so I've just been making. Gee, I must go out to see them before Christmas. Yeah. Uh, I've got an open invitation to get out there. So. Yeah, I visit them quite often too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, two of the boys that are working out there were actually in New Zealand. 
okay. employees well. Yeah. And uh, uh, my interest was in, in the P39. Yep. And uh, when I took all this clobber out to them, I, oh, God, one of the boys that worked with me at Hoist uh, and Apprentice out here in New Zealand, he said, he worked with us for 20 bloody years, he said, and we never even knew he'd been... <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so um, after Woodburn, where were you posted to? Was that when you Woodburn, um, I did a small stint in Ohakia. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not quite sure why that was. I think it was more or less a, a means of uh, <coughs> getting me uh, positioned. Uh, because I, I, I couldn't have been there for more two or three months. Okay. I really didn't get out of the airfield while I was there as far as leave concerned, to go to Bulls or Sanson or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I got posted to Hamilton. Okay. I was in the workshops in Hamilton yep. for a wee while. Uh, and that would have been a short stint too. Uh, here again, I didn't even get home from Hamilton. Okay. Um, so, when you were at Ahakia, was that just an instrument workshop? Yeah, yeah. Yep. I was with the instruments right, right, right yep. through. Yep, yep. Yep. And Hamilton, yep. the instrument uh, That was, was a re uh, um, an inland repair base for everything. Yes. Everything. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, but the instrument ba shop was in the... Um, in the city. Yeah, it was behind Ebbets oh. Motors. Oh, was it there? Because okay. mm. mm. I, I thought it was um, where the Meteor Theatre is now, uh, down by the bridge. There's, there was a, mm -hmm. th there's a, I think it, it used to be the Innes Tartan factory, and the Air Force took it over. I've seen a, I've seen a uh, drawing that said that was the instrument shop. So oh. it's interesting just to find that it was actually behind Ebbets Motors. Mm. Because okay. mm. they, they had all of Ebbets Motors at that stage mm. in the Air Force. Mm. Mm. All the other when I say in behind Ebbets Motors, it might have been not directly behind mm. Ebbets, but it was along in that area. Yep, yep. Um, yes. That's a hell of a place for, uh, to, <laughs> being post from Hamilton. Uh, it's a hell of a place to get your clearance from. Okay. Where you had to have a bike. Because <laughs> yeah, all, all the different bloody places you had to yeah. go to get a signature. And even had to go down to the Narrows, where wow. the field field days are held now. Yeah, yeah. And, and yes, and get a clear. And I never went anywhere near the Narrows. <laughs> That's right. Well, that was crazy. Mm. <laughs> uh, where were you so, living? Were you in the Snake Gully area? Or? Uh, no, it was accommodation um, not far away from the shops, actually. Oh, probably in Palmerston Street there. there it, was it, it was, there. It was in close area. proximity. Yeah. Mm. Okay, and mm. those little tented up type things. Yes, it's a little bit too short in tenure that um, I haven't got much recollection of yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I did in Hamilton. Yeah. I didn't get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's lucky. <laughs> and from Hamilton, uh, I was posted to Fenuapai where we joined uh, a DC-3 and that took us up to the Pacific and I joined Number 5 Squadron okay. up at Santos. Yep. And... Um, then went from Santos uh, across to uh, Funafuti in the Yellow Islands, and that was the best paid holiday I've ever had. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> oh, there was nothing to do, and it was 
could have been boring except for the, the ability to be able to build boats and, <laughs> and so you get some enjoyment out of your day. <laughs> now that that was like a um, like a little section of Five Squadron was basically wasn't it? it wasn't the whole story? Yeah. Oh no no no, it was, it was just a, a section. detachment. Just it? a detachment, yeah. Because uh, number five was uh, stationed in Seagond, yeah. in the harbour. Yeah. So I guess it'd be a really small group of you, and you'd all get to know each other really well. It'd be like a little family, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, here again was um, a bit like uh, the Solomons. Mm. Just with a group of blokes over in Funafuti and just enjoying the uh, the Pacific Atoll surroundings because there was nothing there. Yeah. Well, even when we arrived in Tonga by ship and sort of came out, oh, we're here, but chaps, you know, look at what the hell are we going to do when the tide comes in? Because <laughs> everything's sort of low down, no high rises, just tops of blinking trees. With, <laughs> but then you get on the land, oh, there is land here. <laughs> but Funafuti was just like a, a big curve and, a, and a, a, a plot of land in the corner. Um, there were coconut trees and there, there was a strip across the corner, but a, quite a large lagoon that the, okay. the flying boats operated out of. Mm. Were there uh, natives or civilians living? Oh yes. Yep, yep. Oh yes. Yeah, no, they, uh, any of those places that uh, we were stationed, uh, the natives were there and they just went about there, just daily works. Yep. Um, you met the different ethnic groups of uh, the natives that sort of made up these areas. Of course, most of the Pacific Islands uh, on the eastern side tend to follow the Maori presence as far as physique, colour, uh, getting over towards uh, the western side you run into the uh, Aboriginal and uh, not so much Chinese, it, uh, there wasn't a great Chinese presence but more, more Aboriginal, uh, New Guinea type of um, uh, ethnic structure. At, uh, they were <coughs> less um, acceptant of us, uh, probably because of the language. Right. You know, none was speak English, yep. and they were more, just more Australian Aboriginal to look at. Not quite as, not very large, but um, they weren't. Apart from uh, where would it have been where we enjoyed their, their work in the kitchens and things like that. Um, might have been in, uh, in Funafuti. Well built young boys they were, um, but they could speak English. Yeah. It must have been a hell of a thing for um, the natives of a lot of those islands where the, the only Western influence they would have had was probably a missionary or two, and all of a sudden, all these big machines turn up. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and That's right. And especially those that um, say uh, the Japs got down as far as Tarawa. Yeah. Uh, they did hit uh, Funafuti, uh, but uh, they, didn't, they didn't actually land on it, as far as I know. Okay. So, in that sense, the, the presence of us there 
was a hell of a lot better than, say, the presence of Japanese that could have been there. So uh, this is probably why uh, <coughs> we were able to integrate a lot easier in uh, not being uh, antagonistic towards them. And did, did, did they sort of understand what was going on in the war and understand that you were there to protect them rather than take over the island? Good question. We didn't, didn't have the opportunity to ask them, really. Because yeah, yeah. they wouldn't have really had BBC Radio News or anything, would they? No, and also to the, uh, <coughs> um, the Americans having been there before us probably would have established a... Uh, a sense of security uh, as well and we were there just to maintain the status quo. Yeah. Mm. And so were you in the Ellis Islands until the end of the war? Or did you have any other? Um, I came home, uh, well, no I came home through Santo yep. uh, yes, and I finished up uh, flying home from Santo and Catalina through the uh, uh, through New Caledonia and uh, into the Auckland Harbour, had a fortnight's leave and then was posted out to Ardmore. Okay. And I finished the Maya Force career at Ardmore. Okay. Hmm. Looking that's when I had Corsairs. Right, okay, well that would be interesting. Hmm, hmm. So you were working on the Corsairs? Yep. 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 Okay. Yep. And I was there when the uh, Aircraft carrier in indefatigable <laughs> came in with the sea fires and uh, uh, the ferry fireflies, yep. and also there when the the first jet came to New Zealand, the, the meteor. The meteor. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. Wow. And I I got out of on the April of '46. Okay. Yep. Mm. And were you keen to get out or? Yes. Yeah. Mm. I made a big mistake. Actually, I had a girlfriend that day too yeah. that put the brakes on things. Uh, I really should have gone to Japan. Okay. Uh, I was more coerced by uh, the flight sergeant uh, that was running the uh, instrument section at the time. He'd come and come and come and I'd go, oh, this bloody girl, is, if, I, if I go there, she won't be here when I come back. Yeah. Well, as it turned out, I should have gone. <laughs> so I didn't marry her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. And when you got out, I know that you worked with New Zealand. Did you go into the airline then? Or no, no. I went back to my trade in the city. Yep. And uh, I didn't go to uh, Air New Zealand until 67. Oh, okay. So I was back in the trade quite a a fair while. Did they make you complete your um, apprenticeship or did they take your Air Force time into it? Uh, that's another good question too. Is, uh, I, uh, I had actually been working on the instrument side of cars for a while and then it went into the electrical side of it mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know, I've got a trade certificate but not for an auto electrical. Okay. I've got a trade certificate through my uh, uh, instrument uh, experience with the Air Force and uh, and with Air New Zealand. Okay. So I'd say, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so Air New Zealand in 1967, um, 
Uh, were you with the international or national side of things? Uh, um, I was yeah, international. International. Of course, it wasn't. It was NAC still then, but national. Wasn't it? Well, NAC was operating, and then while I was there, um, they took over the the domestic. Yeah. So you would have been working on the DC eights. I went in on the demise of the Electra. Oh yeah. Um, and of course, the DC eight was uh, operating then, uh, just after the uh, uh, the crash. Uh, the GCA crash I went in and uh, then I saw the uh, introduction of the DC-10s and the 767. I d uh, was sent over to the uh, States uh, by the company with another bloke uh, to uh, look at the new instrumentation that was being uh, introduced on the DC-10. They had vertical tape instruments mm -hmm. uh, rather than ana analogue <coughs> and also uh, digital um, expertise were being introduced at the time too okay. and I was glad to get out because I it was um, too late in life really to get my head wrapped around the the digital change um, and trying to work out how the bloody stuff worked <laughs> <laughs> mind you in while we were doing course over there circuit boards and things a lot and circuit uh, diagrams were shown so um, now this does uh, don't ask me what the thing does is it just believe it works <laughs> So that was good enough for me. <laughs> so yes, so uh, when I say the introduction, the, uh, I was there with the introduction of the 747 of course, yeah. and then the 767. Um, the 767 um, really was completely sort of digitalized right. in comparison with the other two. Uh, the 747 had to keep up with the um, change in thinking from the DC-10. Yeah. The DC-10 was a bloody good aeroplane. Yeah. Uh, and the 747 at that time was still an old aeroplane. Right. It was an old airframe, really. Yeah. Um, but uh, for all that, it was still a marvelous aeroplane. But the DC-10 was good to work on. Okay. It uh, had totally different thinking, too, from Douglas to Boeing. Um, Douglas used to print out a uh, like a servicing manual, uh, it was it was about that freaking thick, yeah. and all the uh, different circuit diagrams and so forth. You could just, uh, what does the land book say? You don't need to. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It was, uh, Boeing never did that. Okay. Never did that. Well, I don't know why, but they were sort of making the big aeroplane for a lot longer than the DC-10. Mm. Uh, but it was. I, I had one until I shifted it over here. I don't know what I did. I think I might have given it to uh, somebody that was working out in here because it was no good anyway because the TC-10s are all gone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so what year did you retire from New Zealand? 89. Okay. And you've done nothing else since or just retired? Wow, that's a good retirement. <laughs> yeah, I've been retired 32 years. Well. <laughs> It's actually it's good though because you're still obviously very with it and fit, and unlike a lot of people that get oh, to your age. I might be with it and not that fit, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me to run around the block. Uh, yeah. <laughs> don't ask me either. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in uh, 16 days' time, I'll be closer to 97 than I am 96. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't know it though. No, I've, I fool a lot of people. Yeah, I, fool I can a imagine. Lot of people. Yes. Yeah. I, I interviewed a 95-year-old yesterday, and he, he's as 
sharp as anything with his mind, but mm. he's got to use a walker yeah. and sticks. Does he? And, yes. And so he's showing his age, but uh, yeah, he's he's mentally sharp. And right. it's, it's good to meet people like you guys that are still mm. like that. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it's a shame, really. Um, a, bit, a bit like uh, I always felt sorry for pilots. Um, say uh, they'd flown a say a seven four seven in from uh, Los Angeles and they're arriving in, in Mangri and that's it, they just walk off the deck and they don't go back flying anymore because yeah. they've retired. Yeah. Now all that experience sort of down the drain, Excellent. unless they've got flying in their blood and they've got that interest outside. But yeah. uh, yes, and then also uh, my tenure there, I had to retire at 65, right. because you don't have to today. No. Uh, it's all on contract, you see, and so uh, you can determine when you want to go, but okay, they can too, really. Yeah. Um, but walking out the door and not having a replacement in behind you when you walk out the door, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, right. It doesn't make sense. It's yeah. No, you're right. And with that retirement age, I mean, um, one of the pilots I talked to a couple of years back, he'd been in the Battle of Britain. That's right. And um, so he, he was a very experienced pilot. I think he joined up before the war, mm. or very early. Oh, he was in the Battle of Britain. Yeah. Mm. And um, he went on, straight after the war, he went to BOAC, and their policy was pilots retire at 55. Yeah, well, that's uh, our pilots had the same. Yeah. Yeah. And so he retired at 55, never worked again, and for the next 40 something years on a really good pension. And he said, yeah. he said they hate me, they're waiting for me to die. <laughs> that's it, too. Yeah, yeah that's it. He's like, he's like, keep working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was another point, the uh, retirement. Although, um, I think. Um, our pilots could get uh, another further five years if they went flying with Malaysian or somebody like that. Yep. Yep. Uh, or they might go as training pilots yep. and and still keep up another or another get another five years into it. I've talked I'm, to I've talked to one or two who've gone uh, on to flying freight or something like that. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Freighters. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you can think of that we've missed, um, particularly with the P-40s? P-40s? Um, not really, no. Here again, it was such a such a reliable aeroplane. It was, it was a joy to work on, really. Yeah. Um, like most American aircraft, uh, all their systems are laid out uh, in a sensible way. Um, everything in its in in place and in the right place. Um, if you hop out of a say a Kitty Hawk and into a Spitfire pilot, uh, cockpit and and see the well, the later versions of the Spitfire and so forth are all more semi-Americanized. Possibly they've learnt the lesson too, <laughs> um, where you, you, your instrument presentation is all. Uh, I'm I'm a straight line person. Uh, I don't I like curves, but, uh, but in uh, 
sort of fitting, uh, have a round one here, a round one there, rather than a round one here and a round one there and a little one here. Everything uh, <coughs> with uh, comparative size and circumference in their right places. And everything is, is set up and tidy and easy to read. Uh, it's where we were introduced to what we call the Colesman panel. Okay. Now the Colesman panel uh, was a an, an oblong structure more in the centre of the dash and it, it had uh, your altimeter, uh, tachometer, turn and slip um, and two or oh, airspeed of course um, and then two other instruments were all in the one panel and it was standard right through and all other ancillary, ancillary equipment like your voltmeters and oil pressures and things like that, all systematically positioned outside that panel. And it was on its own rubber mountings too. So it, that was the uh, the guiding panel for the pilot to fly. It, as long as the, the engine was turning around and it wasn't belching smoke or anything like that, he concentrated on those instruments there to fly the aeroplane. So uh, yes, that, that's all changed now. It's all in behind glass. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you got to be a computer technician to work it Ooh, out. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. And the fact that uh, they've been able to transfer uh, what we enjoyed in um, gears and cogs and spindles and wheels and things like that, now it's all like the readout on the stove over there. Yeah. And how the hell do they do that? Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you very yes. much. My pleasure. It's My been, pleasure. It's been really, really interesting. Yes, it's, uh, I only wish I had a little bit more knowledge on <coughs> on the aircraft that I, I serviced on. It, it sort of jumping from one to the other and not spending say your time on one subject that you could really into and just tear apart and put it back together but yeah uh, <coughs> here it gets sort of going from the uh hawker hind say to a kitty hawker <laughs> well the engine might have been similar but that's about all <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> there's a 12 cylinder v but uh no I, I like the aircraft, it's the, the smell about them and uh, like a bumblebee they shouldn't fly because they're so damn heavy but they do <coughs> and uh, and also to see the boys out there when they say they're refurbishing uh, a certain type of aircraft you go out there they're not refurbishing them at all they're actually building them yeah. Yeah, the last time I went through there <coughs> they had uh, Paul had a, a jig sitting on the floor there and it, there's a whole lot of frames on it and the, the jig is just a, a big a piece of round steel yep. and it's got position on it. Well, they're not they're not refurbishing those the, those formers there those freestyle formers they've been made yeah. so they're actually remaking the aeroplane from yeah. scratch yeah. to yeah hands off to them but uh, and especially with the with the mosquitoes that uh, 
the, uh, the first time visiting uh, Glen Powell out at uh, Drury. We went out to, uh, I think it was, it was either, it must have been with Air New Zealand retirees that we went out. It was a probus trip. Anyway, um, we duly went out there and, uh, no, it was a, it was a probus trip. Yes, it was a probus trip. And then going to this big shed mm. and here's this bloody big wing sitting up on its, on its head like that. And that's all wood. And all the different openings inside and seeing the construction inside it. That's absolutely magnificent. And then to see the mould mm. the, for the fuselage and the likes, and the way he conjured that up, and uh, then be taken through what they were actually trying to achieve, and then see the, the other uh, young bods working there, laminating different frames and the likes, it, and it's all hands on. Yeah. Bloody beautiful work. Fantastic. Beautiful work. Yeah. And the poor bugger died yeah. on the 26th. Yeah. Yeah. Such a shame. Yes, yeah. because he always had aspiration of having one himself. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, good. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.